Welcome to a new edition of the Canadian Crew Podcast. I'm Jorge Castillo. A terrific feature debut by Canadian filmmaker Ashley McKenzie. Werewolf is a greedy look at a couple of heroin addicts trying to get better in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. While not the most original idea, the film is interesting as it shows the twosome navigating the Canadian bureaucracy as they try to attain a degree of normalcy. While the female lead, Nessa, follows the often patronizing rules imposed by people in positions of authority, her boyfriend Blaze becomes easily frustrated and lands in a vicious circle that prevents him from getting better. The relationship suffers because of it and, as painful and unfair as it sounds, cutting a loved one loose might be the only way out. Mackenzie used non-professional actors for Werewolf. The strategy pays off handsomely. Andrew Gillis and Brie McNeil give fresh and unassuming performances, capturing tight, oppressive shots. The Canadian crew talked to Ashley McKenzie during the latest Toronto Film Festival. During our conversation, the filmmaker discussed her relationship with Cape Breton, why she decided to go with amateur actors, and how American Cinematographer magazine has shaped her work. Ashley McKenzie, welcome to the Canadian crew. It's great to be here. My first feature, Werewolf, is premiering at TIFF, and it's a relationship film about a young couple who are methadone dependent. Mm-hmm. That's, um, I was very impressed by your film. I thought you, as we were discussing before, that you achieved the goal you were going for. Um, in general, let me, tell, tell me a little bit about the, the below the line details about your film because you're, you, it was a low-budget film, uh, non-professional actors. So first of all, how, let's start at the beginning. How did you decide to make this film? What was your source of inspiration? Uh, the, the germ of the film uh, was happened probably about five years ago and I was in my hometown on my, my parents' street and I saw a young couple pushing a lawnmower. And they went into my neighbor's, neighbor's yard and the guy and it was knocking on the front door and the girl was knocking on the side door and sort of aggressively and then they just walked into the house and you could see there was like an altercation mm-hmm. happening and I was just, I was curious because I live in a small town and sort of everyone knows everyone and it's just, it was something that d- doesn't happen every day and I started talking to people about it and everyone was like, oh yeah, there's a lawnmower crackheads. So everyone had a story about what they were calling the lawnmower crackheads, which, you know, for me it was a bit derogatory, but I was really interested in like knowing who these people were because mm-hmm. like, I probably went to school with them and you know what's how did they get to this point? What, where are they living? What do they do every day? What's their what's their life situation like? And so that sort of sparked the original idea for the film. It's a tremendously evocative image hmm. of them pushing the the lawnmower. Mm-hmm. You as a filmmaker, you see this happening and it's like immediately you see. Oh, this has to, this is something, right? Yeah, yeah, it definitely felt cinematic and yeah, so I think, I think they were, in, in my town where I'm from, there's a lot of opiate addiction. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's probably what they were struggling with, but because of the opiate addiction, there's uh, a methadone program in Cape Breton that mm-hmm. a lot of people are on, are on as well when they try to recover. And so yeah, I sort of wanted to pick up somewhat, it's like that, that image that I just described, which is very evocative, has that sort of feeling, I think, of maybe films that are about addiction that are a bit more fast and, you know, glamorous. Mm -hmm. Like, they make, you know, addiction look a bit more sexy kind of thing. (laughs) 
but then for me, I wanted to make a, I decided to make it about a couple who are methadone dependent because you know once you actually try to recover from a situation like that, mm -hmm. the experience is is it's evocative, but in a much more mundane way. Right. You know, I think everything slows down and it's a different kind of struggle. And you're absolutely right regarding uh, addiction as a sexy look. I was thinking of transporting. Yes. Yeah. Right, with the pop songs yes, exactly. and the fast <laughs> editing. Yes. Yeah, so that's kind of, yeah, or like a Requiem for a Dream, like the hip hop montages. This film's quite meditative and slow, mm -hmm. like compared to that. So I was, yeah, I, I wanted to take a look at that story because for me it's not even about, um, it's not about methadone, mm -hmm. you know, but it's, I definitely didn't want to, I wanted to do something different than what you, we're used to seeing in films when it comes to addiction. Mm -hmm. How big was your crew? We had like a, it was a pretty small crew, it was sort of a guerrilla thing, but depending on the needs of the day, you know, the, sometimes it would just be me and a sound recorder and a cinematographer in the room with the actors and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe three people outside doing things, so sometimes it might be five people, other days it might be ten, like if we had a lot of background and we needed some extra help. Okay. So yeah, it, it was a, yeah, a lot, a lot of the film at times was just me and the, the cinematographer and the sound recorder in a room. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would say, yeah, about five to ten would be the, okay. the main crew. We don't see that many films uh, made in Cape Breton. Was it hard for you to put together a team that was able to put, to make to put the film together? It, it wasn't hard because we weren't worried about trying to find people who were experienced film industry mm -hmm. crew. We, that, w I made a short film when I first moved home to Cape Breton and at that time in my career I was still shooting celluloid. Mm -hmm. And that was harder because no one in Cape Breton can shoot film. We had to bring technicians in from away and we also did a union shoot with actors with, and there's no union actors in Cape Breton. So mm -hmm. when we tried to make a film according to sort of more the industry model in Cape Breton, it was really hard. You know, we had to bring everyone in from away, which meant we couldn't shoot for as many days. Mm -hmm. But because that was sort of a frustrating uh, experience or we felt like creatively we couldn't go where we needed to go, we decided to sort of change our process up, process up and shoot digital and then just crew up with people who, you know, might be photographers or they might be videographers, friends of ours who are mm -hmm. artists and have sensibilities that we really align with, but they may have never worked on a film set before. But we were like, we don't think it matters. Like, you know, we, we're not trying to, it's not, we're not worried about, you know, the, any hierarchy or any sort of, you know, formal way of making a film. So you say like the art director on the film was a friend of mine who had never worked on a film before, but he's a photographer and mm -hmm. an artistic person. And it, like everyone who just stepped in without any sort of experience, they just were incredible. Okay. Like it, w it wasn't an issue at all. So, so I think if, if we had been thinking that we need, you know, what we need to do is more like this conventional thing of hiring someone with all these credits on their resume, then it would have, wouldn't, you know, we would have wasted a lot of time and would have changed things a lot, but mm -hmm. we just worked with our friends <laughs> and it was great. <laughs> that's often the best way to, to do it, to work with a team that you feel comfortable yeah, with. Yeah. Now, was this a factor in the fact that you went with uh, non-professional actors? I've always uh, used non-professional actors in my work, but mm -hmm. I've also worked with, you know, professional union actors as well. For me, I find that 
the stories that I write and the characters that I write that oftentimes I can't find in the talent pool and you know with professional actors someone who has that same authentic raw mm -hmm. vibe so that because of that I think I've often used non-professional actors but in this in this case yeah we were more consciously doing that because we knew that we wanted to cast entirely on the island so that we would have the freedom to shoot whenever we want and then just not have to bring people in from away and have that like affect uh, how long we could shoot and that kind of thing so it's a, a creative interest of mine I would say but it also we sort of took it to an extreme for practical reasons okay yeah um, I, what I like about that approach is that it, it gives the feel of the, the acting in the film as a freshness and uh, there's no pulsing at all like yeah. they feel very natural how do you find them yeah yeah, I know that's the thing. Is it's like if there's if if only it was as easy as just putting a real person in it, and it's gonna feel that way. But it's not because, you know, working with non-professional actors for me is like an incredible amount of work in in the casting side mm -hmm. of things because you can see someone and be really intrigued by them and think that they oh look at the way they walk, look at the way they talk, like this they're my character. That's my character right there. But then you need to go, you know, talk to this person, develop a relationship with them, put a camera on, mm -hmm. and see if that maybe everything that's interesting about them shuts down when they're in front of a camera. Like there's no real way to know who's gonna have that, you know, special spark that feels like your character, but also have the ability to, you know, work as an actor more, you know, every single day for mm -hmm. five weeks kind of thing. So, yeah, because I mean, everyone's life situations are different and it's kind of a, a trial and error process. So I auditioned, like, you know, I got a lot of people and there was a lot of people I was inspired by and I was like, yes, that, I have to cast this person. There's no way I can make the film without this person now because right. they're so much like the character, but then, you know, it doesn't all, it, that's not, that's, you go through that and then you work through it and then you end up casting someone and then you look back and you're like, I never could have cast that person. It never would have worked. Like the shoot would have, you know, stopped after two days because mm -hmm. it would have just been, you know, because making a film is extremely demanding and the level of commitment and yeah, everything is, yeah, quite high. I imagine that, yeah, if you cast somebody who would like the characters, you probably will still be shooting at this point. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, some people do that. I'm, I'm sort of interested in, in people who maybe shoot a film over a year, just mm -hmm. on, you know, maybe every second weekend. Like, I thought about that. Some of the people that I would have loved to have cast in the film, if, but it would have it would have been a different film. But I still think maybe I could work with them. But maybe I might just make a documentary with this young girl who, you know, I really connected with because it wouldn't. Have, I don't think we could do the five week straight thing. But maybe I could you know, follow her over the period of two years once in a while when it was right for her schedule and maybe right. a re really interesting film could come out of that. So there's so many different ways to make a film. I think that's, that's what interests me is mm -hmm. about all these things and all these choices. It's like, why not do it a different way? Because who says there's only one way to make a film? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, one of the things I appreciated about the film is that the there's no vanity on any of the actors here and you really need that for particularly if you were going to the, the, the close-ups that you that basically go through the film mm -hmm. 
If you could talk to a little bit about how was the process to, of taking them, the actors, were they, did they know they were being shot that close? We didn't, they, they didn't often, I, I was just actually talking about, to them about that the other day because we never talked about it. We just did it and they didn't really question things mm -hmm. and Bria, who plays Nessa, she had never been in a film before. So she did say the other day that she was sort of like, whoa, the camera. It took her a few days to adjust to the camera being so close to her. Mm -hmm. But she didn't say, like, she, she was never like, worried about what she would look like on camera or anything like that. And, and Andrew, who plays Blaze, he had been in a short film of mine prior to making Werewolf. And, you know, so I think he was kind of used to it too. And they just, I think they had a lot of trust in me, which was amazing. And I think they were both really courageous and not ever worrying about you know, what they, how close the camera is mm -hmm. and what they look like. They just really were committed to the roles and, and yeah, I think they really went for it. And that's an important thing in my films too. Yeah, that I find when I do conventional auditions, people come in and a big thing that always gets in the way is like makeup. Because for my, my I, if an actor comes in and they're wearing makeup, it's like a, it's a barrier for me being able to actually see if they are my character, just because mm -hmm. again, the sort of characters I write are a bit more gritty. And so that's always the, I, t I start, since, you know, through my, doing my short films now, whenever I cast, it's like I put on the casting call, like, don't wear makeup. <laughs> yeah. The decision of the, the close-up, uh, the camera being so close to the actors, yeah, if, I presume this is an artistic decision, or you were also going for uh, making it um, not recognizable because as beautiful as Cape Breton is, you are not relying on the look of the mm -hmm. of the, the area you're shooting, right? Hmm. Yeah, for there's kind of two parts of Cape Breton. Mm -hmm. There's the Highlands, and then there's industrial Cape Breton, which is more like post-industrial Cape Breton, and maybe call the lowlands in some sort of <laughs> more meta metaphorical way but that's where I grew up is in like in small uh, small town mm -hmm. which was a mining town which is became more of a ghost town in the past decade and it's not really so beautiful in in the way that I think a lot of people think of Cape Breton because of the tourist ads uh, I think Alistair MacLeod or someone talking about the uh, writer Alistair MacLeod has worked referred to the area as like having a dreadful beauty mm -hmm. so that's more what that's more my world so I never when I think about making films I'm never I never think about oh lands beautiful landscape shots or anything because it's just not what I associate with home so yeah I, in that way it's like I wasn't even thinking like oh I, I can't I have to avoid the beauty the beauty shots I mm -hmm. was like never even thinking about a period but but I was definitely consciously trying to keep uh, the frame, I guess, a bit just on the characters. You know, yeah. it's just really focused on the characters, and you're forced to like live with them, and not you can't really escape that. You can't really look away. It just it never didn't feel right to, you know, do a cut shot reverse shot when they're, you know, talking to people, you know, minor characters that aren't, mm -hmm. you know as important I just yeah but stylistically I just really trust my instincts I just whenever we're shooting a scene I just put the camera where I felt it, it was the best place to put it and where mm -hmm. I you know felt something when I saw the composition you know it was a very pretty instinctual thing I just pointed at what was to me the, the most 
interesting image and seemed to capture the feeling of the scene. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, didn't really worry about traditional coverage or what, what the film would look like in the end. And at times it was a bit scary. Mm -hmm. At times it's like, well, I'm just shooting this whole scene on the character's hands. <laughs> I really hope this works. <laughs> did, you, did you sketch it out before in advance? No, 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 there was no storyboards. And my DP and I, we shot listed the very first, the night before the shoot, we shot listed for like the first day of shooting. And then we didn't at all after that, you know, we just got so busy and it was fine. It was actually, I think it, it helped the film almost, I think, distill a vision that was even more unified because it forced me in every moment to really put the decision through, through my, you know, thinking and feeling mm -hmm. in that moment, you know, whereas if I had planned it, you know, beforehand and sort of prescribed, oh, this is how it's got to be shot, I feel like I might have been taking more from the film language that I've acquired from, you know, watching films or something like that whereas I didn't do that I just literally was in in the scene and had a camera in my hands and my DP would have a camera in our hands and we mm -hmm. would walk around and move things around and look at different angles and and then just find the best one and and just go for it and not not really think about okay. the consequences <laughs> um how tight was the dialogue like do you do you, do you wrote dialogue as well, or you sort of it was a discovery process during while shooting the scenes. Uh, a bit of both. I, I had a traditional script that I you know developed. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a short script because my films tend to have not tend to be quite quiet, very little dialogue, and and that's that was true of this film. It was very much action based and just yeah, not much dialogue. So it might have been like a sixty page script. But uh, then when we were shooting, we strayed from the script a lot, like so many scenes that ended up in the final film are actually scenes that we shot what was on the page we would say the scene would be about Nessa and Blaze pushing a llama up this really long mm -hmm. a really really big hill uh, when they would go back to their camper every night we would shoot the scene of them pushing up the hill and then when they would get to the top of the hill and the, normally it'd be like okay you'd call cut and you'd reset you'd go back down and and do it again from a different angle mm -hmm. instead of calling cut like what would happen would, you know, the two actors would, you know, maybe sit down on the ground because they're tired and they're going to take a break while we like change cards on the camera or something. But my DP and I were just always watching, looking around us for anything that felt like the film, like the line between what was a scene and what isn't a scene or when we were shooting and when we were not was almost indiscernible. So I wouldn't call cut mm -hmm. and my DP and I would still be filming the actors and then maybe they would realize, oh, things are kind of quiet, look back, see that we're still filming. Then they would maybe just sort of like, you know, gradually sink into a scene and then everyone else would sort of realize we're still shooting and then maybe I would just say something to one of the actors, like say this. and. Mm -hmm. Then maybe they would do that, and then they would. Then all of a sudden, the scene would just organically grow out of that moment where it's like almost like the camera's turned off, but it's not. Right. And we did that a bunch. We just so many times the scenes were actually moments that happened after the scripted scene, and uh, or we met a lot of people on location that we would never have been able to cast beforehand. We wouldn't mm -hmm. have met them until we got there. And they're like, oh, they work in this ice cream shop. Um, 
that you know those young girls that work in the ice cream shop are super interesting. Let's try them in the scene. They have some interesting faces that you have yeah. to roll. Yes. Yeah. So those are people. A lot of the supporting characters are people we met on location on the day, and we were just I was fascinated by them, so I would try them in a scene, and most times it went well. So then we would rewrite mm -hmm. scenes or reshoot scenes or you know improv stuff and. And so the script just started to expand in all these sorts of ways because we were almost, we sort of had a more documentary approach at times. It was just having your eyes peeled every moment. Like, yeah, if the actors are just like in the shade trying to get out of the sun between takes, but they're like laying off in some way that's compositionally interesting, we'd just like go shoot it. Or we'd, you know, the little boy in the film, Donald, someone we just met on location and mm -hmm. he was just super interesting so we just that you know the actors hung out with him and but I had him hang out with him in character you know blaze I was just like okay yeah Andrea you hang out with Donald for a while and these are some things that we could do you know to stay in character and let's see what happens and so yeah to answer your question there was a script but we we strayed from it quite a bit Absolutely. Yeah. there is a um, could we just be my perception of this but there is an interesting critique to the um, assistance system for, or, the, or it's a critique that emerges organically in the sense that when they go and look for help, the treatment is not the best either. And I can, and while his reaction is not, it's not appropriate, Blaze's uh, frustration towards the system is, is fully understandable. Um, how do you, how, did you, obviously you did the research on how will, how will the process be, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, the, I mean, I would, yeah, in some ways that, that might have been even also the more scripted elements of the film, mm. what were based on the research I did about the methadone program and the sort of procedural side of it. You know, if you're, if you're on Oxycontin and you want to get into the methadone program, how do you apply, you know, and once you're on it, how do you get your prescription? Once you have your prescription, how do you actually go and get your dose? You go to a pharmacy and how, how often, yeah, how do you pay for how much does it cost? Uh, how often do you have to do a urine test? And what if you, how long do you have to be on the program before you can get carries to take home so that you don't have to go into a pharmacy every day? And then once you're on it, are you on it for life or do they wean you off it? And mm -hmm. like all that stuff was uh, something that, you know, I, it was a new world to me. It's fascinating, it's fascinating actually. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought it was. So, so that's something I had to do quite a bit of research on. And, but I mean, generally like, you know, I sort of like will want the film to speak for itself. Like I'm not trying to make any scathing critique of, of, anything in particular, no. you know, I, I didn't feel like I had to, I just took, felt like I had creative freedom with that. I didn't put a ton of pressure on myself mm -hmm. to be completely accurate in the depiction of it or to say anything particular, make any particular commentary on it. I think that uh, the film can kind of speak for itself in that regard. That's what I meant when I said that uh, it emerges organically. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a perception that comes from watching this relationship, yeah. right? Um, I'm interested in also in your influences, because uh, I, can, I can't help but see, and then again, this could be my own bias, right? Uh, a bit of Lars von Trier there. Hmm. Yeah, what, yeah, I definitely, early Lars von Trier films, when, yeah, I remember when I was in high school and I saw Dancer in the Dark, I was pretty obsessed with that and I, I remember writing a paper on it in my English class in like grade 11. <laughs> uh, yeah, his early work, like Breaking the Waves and 
and Dancing in the Dark and those films are, are really, yeah, there was something, his, his female characters at that time were like something I hadn't quite seen before and, mm -hmm. and yeah, so he's, I'm sure, I'm sure he's, you know, it can, I'm not surprised that you can see that. It's, I haven't looked back at his work in a, like a long time, but I mean, it's pretty indelible. It definitely changed me in a big way. Um, but yeah, I hadn't, hadn't really thought about him in a long time. Although I used, I used a few references, visual references for some of the design work on my films. Mm -hmm. but, you know, I used some, of, some stuff from his films for that. Uh, yeah, I, yesterday I went to see Certain Women by Kelly Reichard. Oh, She's, you, she is one of my favorite films. I didn't think about it, but yes, yeah. this is, uh, I can see the Kelly Reichert-ness of it. Yeah, and I mean, for me, what I just love the subtlety of her work and how, like, particularly say in Meek's Cut Off, it's like the scale of drama. She shrinks it down so small mm -hmm. that the moment when, say, like the wheel breaks off the wagon is so dramatic. It's like this huge moment, but in any other film, you know, a squeaking wheel that you're hearing over and over and over again, and then the moment when it breaks up would be like nothing. It would most people wouldn't have that would not play in a film, but mm -hmm. in a film like that, and it makes cut off, and also when like she fires the gun for the first time, those two moments are like hugely dramatic f moments for me because of how she just shrinks the scale of drama like to this really subtle poetic place, and mm -hmm. so that's something that I, I really love about about her work and. Yeah. I don't know, it's a, I think, I didn't like, like I said, I didn't storyboard or shot list, and I actually didn't really have many like references. Normally when I'd be working with collaborators, mm -hmm. sometimes to get them in my head, you might get them some, some references, but we didn't really do a lot of that. We didn't have a lot of time, so I'm just focusing on just trying to make films that feel like me, mm -hmm. I guess, and doing what feels right for me, and I guess it's, it's hard to analyze what is coming through it's more i guess for other people to tell me that yeah they, they feel this or that and i can just be like yeah i love that filmmaker i don't <laughs> like that filmmaker and i just yeah i like talking about films so <laughs> of the four um well you probably did more than four i'm just thinking of the shorts that are listed in your internet movie database what would you say is the biggest uh, change for you in practical terms in going from shorts to feature what do you discover about making a feature that you didn't know before because you were doing shorts? Hmm. Well, I, I guess I can answer that on a creative side of things and a business side of things. Mm -hmm. Creatively, I found making the feature to be more fulfilling because, I mean, you sort of have to do all the work of, of a feature when you're doing a short. You have to cast all your actors, you have to find all your locations, you have to get all your costumes, you have to get all your props. It's like you assemble the whole, all the textures that you need for the universe of, this, of the film, but then with the short, you only shoot for a few days. And so for me, you know, with the feature, it's like a few days, say four days into shooting the feature, I actually felt like, oh, okay, now I know what this character is. Because once an actor, you know, takes on a character, it becomes something different because of mm -hmm. who they are. So it probably took about four days to f actually see who is Blaze and who is Nessa and what are they like and how do they interact, what does it feel like. and what is the story that is actually emerging more organically, perhaps, than the one I wrote on the page? Mm -hmm. So that started to happen, and then we still had like 20 more days to shoot. Mm -hmm. So then, the, because of that, because of the duration of shooting, 
I felt like the film evolved creatively to a place like that was better than what I had written and we had the freedom to explore material and and just uh, evolve it so that was something that I would say would be the big change mm -hmm. that, I, that I took away from the fe feature process as opposed to shorts and then and then yeah the on the business side of things I would say that just say just since the film has been launched at TIFF that which because I had short films play at TIFF before but it being a feature this time around, like, it's very different. Like, mm -hmm. I think I feel like I've been living in a bubble making short films as far as just protected from the industry side of things, the business side of things, because there's not as much interest in selling short films. Right. So you just sort of, I just, you know, make my films and I play it at a festival and I go home and keep making films and I never really think about, you know, who's going to buy it or who wants to distribute it and agents and all this stuff. So that, I think, is the other thing big difference between the short film world and the feature world that I'm, I'm that I didn't expect mm -hmm. that I'm trying to navigate now and understand is just uh, how it's sort of opening up because my world a lot because I live on an island where there's no film community and often you know that that side of the the industry isn't something that uh, I encounter a lot but that's what sort of what I'm trying to figure out right now navigate mm -hmm. that feels very new and how are the distribution possibilities? Because your, the thing is, your film is being selected in several festivals right now. Mm -hmm. to Toronto, playing Vancouver soon. Mm -hmm. And the reviews are good. So how, what are the chances that people in the country get to see it? Hopefully there's a good chance, but mm -hmm. it's, it's very early in the process right now. Like, you know, we just premiered the film a couple of nights ago. And uh, we have a Canadian distributor, La Distributrice des Films, out of Montreal, who I worked with on some of my shorts. So uh, we'll definitely be planning something, but you know, my, we're you know talking to other distributors here, you know, because okay. you have you have U.S. and international, and so that's just it's so early in the process that it's it's hard to say. Like, okay. But hopefully we'll figure out a way to, for the film to have a life and for as many people to see it as possible, whatever platform that is. I'm not sure yet. It's a bit you're too, too, too uh, early in the navigation process to know, but... You're not too worried about the platform? Uh, I'm not thinking about it too much right now. Okay. But I mean, I just... I don't know, things are changing all the time. I, I think I don't really have any clear opinions, I guess. On, mm -hmm. I mean, for me, I, I want to see a film in a theater, but that's my ideal. Mm -hmm but I know that that's not really the most commonplace thing anymore. So but yeah, this is gonna be a big learning process for me, releasing this first feature and figuring out where, where do I want it and who wants it and where, where, what are the best platforms to release like an independent artsy you know, film. It's hard to, yeah, hard to know, but cool. maybe in six months I'll have a clear answer. <laughs> No, um, to close actually, are you, do you, are you planning to continue working from Cape Breton? I'm not sure. I also didn't really, I think the past eight years or six years or however long I've been making films, uh, I have just somewhat been leading to making my first feature. So I haven't really planned my life beyond this point. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't, I'm, certainly that's where I live right now, so I'll be going back there in, in the fall and start, I'll start writing my next feature and I'm sort of interested in maybe making a short in the next six months as well. So, But yeah, I'm just going to wait and see where it feels like I should be. Usually, usually it's 
project dependent. Mm -hmm. That's like that's where I go. Is like what whatever story is captivating me in a particular time or whatever person I'm captivated by that I'm you know thinking is going to be the subject of my next film. That's mm -hmm. usually where I'll find myself. So I think that will become clearer too in the next six months to a year where how where I should be and for how long. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Um, well, I can see how much freedom you get doing the, uh, working from there, so, which is probably not the same you will, you will get it from from Toronto or yeah, I don't, or yeah, I wonder. I mean, certain yeah, certainly maybe because there's less people around and no, you know, there's no one looking over your shoulder. Mm -hmm. You know that, so yeah, that maybe that does make us feel a bit more free. But I feel like you know, why not? You can probably do the same thing here. I mean, certainly people are like. You know, MDFF, Kaz, Erdwanski, and Dave Montgomery. I mean, I don't, actually don't know a ton about how they, the, what their shooting process is mm -hmm. like, but I'm pretty sure it's not like a traditional industry film and, you know, the whole Toronto do it yourself sort of movement. I'm, I'm guessing there's probably a lot of filmmakers like them okay. here who are making work in, in, a, in a different way, I guess, in a bit more of an organic way. More of a permit issue. Oh, right, right, right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, we definitely didn't deal with purpose. They're, ver they're very picky on that regard. Yeah. To close, now to actually to close, um, you're, the way you make films is not necessarily the traditional way that films are made. How did you get to that point? Did you, is, is something more instinctive or something that you... Uh, you you saw, you saw somebody work this way, and that's a way, and you decided that this is the way I want to work. For my process, For like the, my yeah, shooting process, process? Mm -hmm. um, I haven't really seen other people work this way because uh, the only sets I've ever been on, besides my own, are were sets say in Halifax, and they were definitely more commercial mm -hmm. and you know industry-based sets. But I will say that whenever I see a film that I love, say like when I saw Force Majeure mm -hmm. a couple of years ago and was just so blown away by how, I thought it was just so masterful. Every shot, I'm like, how did they execute that? How did they make it so perfect? Whenever I see something that's just so, you know, perfectly made, I want to know more about the process. So, mm -hmm. say, but that film I read up about the director and it's like, oh, he's like, he makes sure that he at least has 60 days. He's always, he's going to have at least 60 days. He shoots one scene a day and he does 50 takes. So they, they do, you know. And oftentimes it's the last takes that, but basically it's like he'll have the scripted scene, they'll try it out that morning, he'll realize, oh, now that the scene is actually happening in this real place with real people, it doesn't really work. So through the day they'll evolve it to a place that's better and they'll do 50 takes and they'll shoot for 60 days and I'll be like, okay, okay, that's how they did that. Or I'll read about, we read a lot, of, or there was an American cinematography article uh, about Tree of Life mm -hmm. that Emmanuel Lebeski had, I think, to, I think I have that issue. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's that, I love that article. So they de he describes a ton about Malik and his shooting process, which was so inspiring. That is probably like the main influence. But I mean, I didn't actually see any of these things happening, but I've read about them. Mm -hmm. Like they did this thing called torpedoes that Malik would do, which would like, the, you know, be running a scene and he would just throw some element into it on the fly without anyone knowing. Like, you know, if the parents and in Tree of Life were like having an argument in the kitchen, he would just like throw one of the kids into the scene and just see how it changed things. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then they called it torpedoes. Like that's something that, that I did a lot on set. Uh, like the scene uh, when Blaze is at Mark's house and they're playing the video game and the dog comes in. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, the dog was outside in the backyard 
and in the middle of the scene I left set, like unhooked the dog because it was only me and, and Scott, my cinematographer, and the sound recorders in the room and I just like put him in the scene and then just that, you know, it, just this sort of rogue element that just kind of changes things and keeps the actors on their toes. That was something we did a lot. So mm -hmm. because I don't live, yeah, I live far away from any other film shoots or sets. I don't actually get to witness this, you know, other people work in person, but I definitely like to read about filmmakers that I, that I love and I'm always curious how people are making films. And so I think I take stuff from that for sure. Cool. Well, Ashley Mackenzie, thank you for talking to us. Yeah, thank you. Our thanks to Ashley Mackenzie. Werewolf is making the festival rounds and just won the Focus Canada Prize for Best Canadian Feature at the Festival du Nouveau Cinema. Remember, you can reach us on Twitter at The Can Crew, on Facebook at The Canadian Crew page, or write us to The Canadian Crew email, all one word, on Gmail. Also, you can help us keep The Canadian Crew ad-free by contributing at gofundme.com slash The Canadian Crew. I'm Jorge Castillo, until next time.